This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Preborn. For $140, you can provide ultrasounds to five women in crisis pregnancies. Call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229 or JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Great to be with you again. From the moment we came to know Jesus Christ, the Lord set us on a narrow path that really involves more than one journey. As my next guest notes, one journey is the external one of gospel advance. The other one is the internal one of our sanctification, that process of God conforming us to the image of Jesus Christ in all areas of life. As the Apostle Paul urged the Ephesians in chapter four of that great epistle, put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. How do these journeys intertwine and why are they so important for us to understand from a biblical perspective? Well, that is what we will be talking about today with Dr. Andrew Davis. He is senior pastor of First Baptist Church of Durham in North Carolina and author of the book we'll be discussing called An Infinite Journey, Growing Toward Christlikeness. Great to have you here, Andy. Thank you so much for being with us. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Thank you. You know, I like that you talk about these two infinite journeys and you sort of explain why you say they're infinite, because, of course, people will say, well, wait a minute, my sanctification will eventually end, right, once I'm with Christ. Well, it's not perhaps the best term, infinite. I was a mechanical engineer. I know from mechanical engineering and mathematics, it does imply that we'll never get there. But I believe with all my heart that both of these journeys, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advance will in fact be completed. But the thing is, I want people to know that we're going to be about these, both of these journeys till the day we are done on earth and the church is going to have to do them. They're never going to be finished. And furthermore, that it takes an infinite power supply. It takes Jesus Christ himself working in us through the Spirit. None none of us can do uh, even a single step of advance in either journey without that infinite power supply. So I I stick with that word infinite. I just want people to know we're going to be doing these as long as we're on earth. Absolutely. I think you're right about that. So talk a little bit about this first journey that you mentioned, this external journey that we're on. How would you describe Well, this is the uh, journey of gospel advance from that upper room in Jerusalem where Jesus uh, poured out the Holy Spirit on the church, and and then the church spilled out in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. He said, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, even to the ends of the earth. And that's been going on now for 2,000 years, and it's been marvelous to see, and we feel it's actually accelerating. The last hundred years, missions has just exploded. More and more people are hearing the gospel. It's a very exciting time to be alive. So it really has to do with evangelism and missions. Yeah, absolutely. And the good thing to note when you're talking about that extra journey is it reinforces the point that when you become a Christian, it's not all individual. It's also part of being the body of Christ on a mission that involves all of us. Absolutely. We're all part of the body of Christ, the universal church, and there are brothers and sisters in Christ all over the world that are hearing and believing the same gospel, and that really is thrilling. And I think only when we see that multitude greater than anyone can count that it talks about in Revelation 7, we're going to see the full effect of the external journey then. Yeah, absolutely. So let's turn our attention to this internal journey of sanctification, which you actually point out, and I think you're right about this, that this is sort of a neglected emphasis of the church. We put a lot of emphasis on evangelism and missions and outreach, not as much on personal holiness, being conformed to the image of Christ, growing in godliness. Why do you think we're at that place as a church? 
Well, I think it's easier to measure baptismal statistics and people making that initial commitment of faith, and I do believe we can instantaneously have all of our sins forgiven through faith in Christ, and, and that's justification by faith, but then there's that hard work of becoming gradually conformed to Christ, and it isn't easy. And, you know, Chuck Swindoll wrote a book, Three Step Forward, Two Steps Back, and you have that sense of that, and it's it's difficult. That's what shepherding is all about. I'm a pastor, and, and we're, we work with a team of pastors, and we want to see people making, making growth and personal holiness and putting sin to death, but it's, it's very hard to measure. And yet it's of the essence of the Great Commission. Jesus said you'll, uh, in, in Matthew 28, you'll, be, um, you'll make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then he said this, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Mm-hmm. And that's the internal journey. That's uh, just gradual, consistent uh, obedience to everything Christ has commanded us to do. Absolutely. Well, you've mentioned justification, which is uh, our salvation, obviously, that we yeah. accept the forgiveness of Christ, his work on the cross, and also he was raised to life for our justification. But you have a chapter on our great salvation. And of course, we can't really understand sanctification unless we understand our salvation. But what do we need to know about what Christ yeah. has done for us before we can really understand sanctification? Well, everything's based on the finished work of Christ on the cross. We believe that Jesus is the Son of God who was born of the Virgin Mary, who lived a sinless life, and who completely and perfectly obeyed the law of God on our behalf and earned for us a righteousness that we could never have earned. We cannot perfectly keep the law. We don't perfectly keep it. And then he died in our place, the judgment and wrath that we deserve for having violated God's laws. And then he was raised from the dead on the third day, which we as Christians just celebrate. We celebrate every Sunday, but just Easter Sunday, we celebrate the resurrection of Christ. And that is the the finished work of redemption that Christ has given to us. But uh, having come to believe in that and be adopted as his sons and daughters and having all sins forgiven, we're then left in this world. And part of that is that internal journey of growing more and more like Christ. And it's a difficult journey. It's, it's hard. You see your own sinfulness. We struggle with, with indwelling sin. And it's just very comforting to know that, that our performance doesn't change our standing with God. We are at every moment accepted in Christ and justified, forgiven. That's right. But I have always put it this way. I said, when you become a Christian, you fight sin. That's what's different. When, when Before you knew Christ and you sinned, you didn't care. You walked in the flesh. You gratified the desires of the flesh. Now that you belong to Christ, that's the starting point, though. But again, this is not something I hear a whole lot of emphasis on, fighting sin, and that that is the natural condition of the Christian. It is. I just, I'm just i preaching through Ephesians, and yesterday I was preaching in Ephesians chapter 5 on, on the issue of sexual sin and, and how sad it is that many evangelical churches, the statistics show there's not a lot of difference in the young people and how they behave in terms of purity. Mm. And it could be that, like Paul says right there in Ephesians, do not let anyone deceive you with empty words. Mm. And for me as a pastor, I don't want to deceive people. I want to tell them that salvation is, is something that comes to us in stages. Uh, we have been saved, the Bible says. We are being saved and we will be saved. There are time aspects of it. Justification we think of in terms of past. It's done. It it, it doesn't need to be changed. It can't be improved upon. And in that justification righteousness, we will stand on judgment day. But then having done that, we must put sin to death by the Spirit, it says in Romans 8. And if we're not putting sin to death by the Spirit, we actually are not children of God. That's the clear implication of Romans 8, 13 and 14. So we want to say that clearly to people. And then the church is there to help them do it, to help them mortify 
my uh, sin habits and grow in grace and the knowledge of Christ. Absolutely. And so many passages back that up. What do you say to a new Christian, though, or somebody who isn't even a believer about the necessity of sanctification? Because there is this element in the church these days that says it's all grace from beginning to end. I can't, you know, as you mentioned there before, I can't possibly perform to the extent that God expects. But Christ did it all for me, so I shouldn't really worry about it. What do you say about that? Well, I just don't think that's the gospel. That's not that's not the the bent of most of the epistles. They're so clear. They're written to Christians. They're written to the church, but uh, teaching them holiness. And I think people like that just don't seem to have an understanding of the whole work of salvation coming to us in stages, step by step. And so my desire is to tell them the truth, to show them in the book of Romans how these things are unfolded and how justification leads to sanctification and how they're related. I actually think the relationship between the two of them, how they're related, justification, sanctification, how they're different, uh, is very much of the essence of a good teaching ministry by a pastor. I agree. And I know there are, there are some disagreements in the house of Christendom on the issue of where justification and sanctification separate and how you tell the difference, etc. But what would be your position on the difference between justification and sanctification? Well, the key thing is the role of works, I think. Um, our, our works have no role in justification. We are absolutely not forgiven ever for any sin by something that we do. You can't, now the way I say it is you can't use present and future obedience to God's law to pay for past disobedience to God's law. Mm. It just never works that way. We can never do better than what God has commanded, and there's no extra credit on any given day. So once we violated the law, we are ready to be condemned, and that's where we're saved by Christ. And so our works don't play any role whatsoever in justification. Our effort plays no role. It's simply by faith, by grace through faith. Absolutely. But sanctification, we're told to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Philippians 2, for it is God who works in us to will and to act. And so there's a partnership there, a partnership between us and God the Holy Spirit. Absolutely. And there's so much more we'll be talking about regarding sanctification when we come back. Dr. Andrew Davis, his book, An Infinite Journey, Growing Toward Christlikeness. We'll be back on Janet Effort today after this. The healthcare open enrollment period has ended. Did you miss it? Don't go a whole year without having a healthcare program. Sign up with Liberty HealthShare. As a Christian healthcare sharing ministry, Liberty HealthShare is not insurance, so you can still sign up. In fact, you can sign up any time of year, and there are no contracts. Starting as low as $199 a month, Liberty HealthShare has memberships for singles, couples, and families, so you can choose the ideal program for your situation. Plus, Liberty HealthShare has no network, so you're free to pick your own doctors, hospitals, and providers. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, so your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you, too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals who understand the importance of people coming together to bear one another's burdens. Go to libertyhealthshare.org JMT for more information. libertyhealthshare.org JMT. To me, the ultrasound was the best part because up until that point, I did not 
think about anything but myself. I did not think about the blessing that I was given or what was inside of me. The Ministry of Preborn meets young moms where they are and introduces them to their preborn babies. Because when a mom in crisis sees her baby on ultrasound and hears his heartbeat, eight out of 10 times, she will see her baby as a living person, not an inconvenience. That ultrasound changed everything for me. It really did. That made it all worthwhile to know that I was going to have a little blessing. Preborn is the largest provider of free ultrasounds in the country. Would you join with Preborn and Janet Maffer today? For $140, you can sponsor five ultrasounds and help save five babies' lives. All gifts are tax deductible, and 100% of your donation goes towards saving babies' lives. Call 855-402-BABY now. 855-402-2229. That's 855-402-BABY. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMaffer.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. We're back on Janet Mefford today talking about growing toward Christ-likeness. A great book. It's called An Infinite Journey by Dr. Andrew Davis, Senior Pastor of First Baptist Church of Durham in North Carolina. Andy, we were talking about the difference between justification and sanctification, and I think you said this very well. Justification is accomplished for us, but there is a partnership aspect to sanctification that we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, not that we are working our way to salvation by what we are doing, but it is us cooperating, walking in the spirit. And you you talk about these four different headings, this cycle uh, as we're moving toward Christian maturity, starting with knowledge. So where do we begin in understanding this cycle growing toward maturity? Right. Knowledge I define as factual and experiential spiritual information. So it comes by reading the Bible and by living in God's world. And it starts with a key verse, Romans ten seventeen. Faith comes by hearing the word. And so our faith comes as we understand and read and, and absorb the biblical message. But it also comes from living God, in God's world. As Jesus said, consider the lilies of the field or certain things that we just learn from living. And those two prime the pump for everything that follows. Based on knowledge, then comes faith. Uh, an increase of biblical knowledge causes our faith to rise and to grow. And so knowledge plus faith together transforms character. That internal heart nature, character and heart would be equivalent terms for me. Right. And then out of a transformed heart, we live a different kind of life. Okay. Now, when we talk about having factual knowledge, we are not obviously talking about mere knowledge as being saving. It is just a link in the chain, so to speak. Right. Well, there are a lot of people that would have factual knowledge, but if they don't have faith, then they're not saved. So the knowledge has to lead to faith in Christ. And I define faith in, in the book uh, in five sub-bullets, but ultimately it has to do with an, the ability to see invisible spiritual things, primarily the work of Christ. He's invisible to us. Like it says in First Peter 1, we've not seen him. Though we have not seen him, we love him. And so the, the primary thing is faith in this invisible Savior, Christ. And we see him crucified crucified and resurrected by faith when we read the biblical account. So when we're talking about the basics of knowledge, people will say, well, I don't necessarily have to be this great theologian to be a Christian, but what are the the basic facts you must know and believe to begin this journey of becoming a Christian and actually being sanctified? 
Right. Well, first I would say to that person, that's true that you don't have to have much biblical knowledge to be a Christian, but you do have to have a lot of biblical knowledge to be mature. And so the book I'm talking about is A Pathway to Spiritual Maturity or Conformity to Christlikeness. So our desire is that we not leave infants in their infancy, but that they would grow up to be able to to take the full meat of the Word, everything that the Bible teaches, all things that are taught in the Scriptures, even the, the hardest doctrines, everything. So we just don't want to leave people drinking milk decades into their Christian walk. So we want them to grow. But if you're asking what they need to know at the beginning, it's all those things focused, as we've already said even today, on Christ, on, on who he was, on his, his death, his resurrection. Those are the beginning doctrines that you have to accept to be a Christian. Very good. And you also highlight another source of spiritual truth. You have to have experiential knowledge. Sure. What are the limits on that? Because we live in sometimes an over-emotional, experiential sort of world. Right. But, but what are you talking about there? Well, Janet, honestly, there are just some things that we have to live through in order to, to learn. Uh, for a very good example of this is suffering. Uh, you have to go through suffering in order to be mature as a Christian. That's why James says in James chapter 1, consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance, and first perseverance must finish its work so that you'll be mature. So this book is about maturity, and you have to go through suffering to get to maturity. You can't read about it in a book. You don't gain really that much benefit from other people's suffering um, in terms of your own sanctification. You can read about how martyrs died and others, and we can get strengthened, but that's really so that we can go through suffering well. So there are just some things that we have to live through in order to grow. That's great. Although I, I'm laughing in a way, I completely agree with you, but I'm laughing in a way because that's so against the spirit of the age. The idea that if you're, and even people who misunderstand Christianity, oh, Jesus will be wonderful and he'll make my life better and I'll get rich and I'll be healed and all that. It's Suffering obviously is all over the Bible, but it's not something, again, that we hear a lot. No, it isn't. I think you're talking now about what we would call the prosperity gospel or the health and wealth gospel, and sure. I'm just against that as a false teaching. I think it's very plain that we grow mostly through suffering. Uh, God is wise in mixing up very sweet times in our lives, but for the most part, it's those afflictions and sufferings that cause us to cast ourselves more and more on God. Absolutely. So when we get to the portion that we've, we've talked about a little bit, faith, the assurance and the conviction of the spiritual truth, you, we have this certainty, as you mentioned, that invisible spiritual realities are true and the assurance of things hoped for, as Scripture says. But what does biblical faith look like in an individual human being? What what should we look for? Yeah, I, I like to say it that faith is the eyesight of the soul. Um, so by which we see invisible spiritual realities as they're taught in the Bible. So it's, it, there's uh, many, many verses that link faith and sight. For example, one verse just says, we walk by faith, not by sight. So it's, it directly compares them. Uh, it says in Ephesians 1, Paul prays that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened so that we would know various aspects of our salvation. I think the eyes of the heart is faith. And so it, it works this way, that we are able to see vividly invisible things. Mm-hmm. And so the first being um, the biblical facts that are, that are taught, past, present, and future, the facts of the gospel, the facts of the Red Sea crossing and the Jewish nation, the things we read in the Bible. There's a lot of history there. And so we believe that those things are really true. They really happened, especially Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We just believe that by faith. Mm-hmm. And then things present, that there is an invisible God and that there are angels and demons and, and all of these things that the Bible teaches about the present spiritual reality. And then the future, the second coming of Christ, Judgment Day, and eternity in heaven or hell. Those things 
things are all taught and we receive them by faith. And there is that conviction of sin. I'm so glad that you included that, that it will do something to you. It's not just merely, I believe this, I profess this, but it actually is something that you do experience. Right. The word convict in Hebrews 11, one, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. I, I take it to be similar to a court trial. We talk about somebody being convicted, and I think that's how the Greek word is used. It has to do with evidence of sin or, or, or reproof or rebuke for sin. And so the point I'm making there is it is by faith we see ourselves. And we see ourselves as sinners in need of a Savior. And frankly, in sanctification, the more you go on, the more vivid you have a sense of your own sinfulness. It doesn't become less, it becomes greater. And we have more and more a sense of, like Jesus said, the 10,000 talents that we have been forgiven by God. And I think when we we were first saved, we thought we owed about 100 bucks. And by the time we get to the end, like Paul says, I'm the greatest of all sinners on the face of the earth. And And he wasn't just using rhetoric. I think he really believed that if anyone, he was the one most needing the Savior work of Christ. And that, absolutely. That's conviction of sin. Yes, it sure is. And you're absolutely right. The longer you go as a Christian, the more you see how sinful you really are. And yeah, absolutely right. So this leads to character. And this is another key element of the pathway to Christian maturity. When you are in the process of being sanctified by God and you are walking in the spirit, what kind of character should you be seeing in the life of a Christian? Right. I think we're just going to go to the word I have right in the cover of the book, Christ-likeness. We want to be conformed to Christ. And so character, again, as I mentioned a few moments ago, I would say a biblical, the biblical word is heart, our, our inner nature. Who are we really inside? And it starts with affection or love. What do we love and what do we hate? You know, Jesus boiled it all down to these two great commandments, to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbors yourself. It was Jonathan Edwards that taught me that affection has to do with the attraction or repulsive Repulsion of the heart, like mm-hmm. almost like a magnet, to a greater or less degree. Mm-hmm. So what you what you love and what you hate says a lot about who you truly are as a person. That's right, and it is really. I think it needs to be emphasized also that this is a lifelong process. I think it's easy sometimes to read your great book and go, "Oh, this is wonderful," and then feel, "Oh, I'm never going to get there." Right. <laughs> you know, and and the irony there is, for example, if you're growing in humility, if you start to recognize you're growing in humility, you're not growing in humility. So it's yeah, you stop for that day anyway. <laughs> yeah, so it's True. difficult to take your own temperature. How do you advise Christians on how do I know if I'm growing in character? If I can just say this one thing, I think the entire work of salvation, justification, sanctification, and glorification, deeply humbles us. Mm-hmm. In the end, we're going to get to heaven and say, Jesus, save me. Mm-hmm. And we're going to be so humble about that. And sanctification is a very humbling process. It, you don't grow greater and greater and greater in your own estimation. It really is an opposite kind of journey. Really what happens is Christ grows greater and greater in your estimation. But it, it's very humbling. I was, as I was writing the book, I remember one particular chapter. I got to one point, and I looked at what I'd written, and I said, I believe all this is true and biblical, but I'm not living this. Yeah. And I I actually literally started to cry right there at the keyboard. And I said, Lord, work this in me. Change me. And that's that's the effect it has on us. Yeah, we're all like that. Absolutely. So this leads to action, obviously. And there's personal obedience that's involved, positive and negative obedience. What's the distinction there? 
sure. So there are two different types of sins. There are sins of omission and sins of commission. So sins of omission are things that we were told to do, that we're commanded to do, that we do not do. And then there are sins of, of, of commission where we've been forbidden to do some things. So when people think of holiness, they generally go immediately to the negatives, things that we're told not to do. And that is true. There are many very important things that we're told if we're going to be holy, we must never do these things. They must not be part of our lives at all. And I zero in on four key areas of purity in terms of negative sanctification, sexual purity, speech purity, purity in relationships, and then purity in lawful pleasures. These four areas are really important. They don't cover everything, but they get a lot of, there's a lot of issues there with sexual purity, something we really need in our age these days. And then speech purity. James said, if you're perfect in what you say, you're a perfect man able to, you know, control the whole flow of your life. And then relational purity, by that I mean free from unforgiveness and bitterness uh, that corrupt so many relationships. And then lawful pleasures that we would be self-controlled in the area of recreations and videos and all the things that we entertain ourselves with. Absolutely. And I, I think there's also great wisdom in pointing out the positive aspects of obedience that we need to be worshiping the Lord and, and be yeah. in prayer and uh, doing ministry to believers and be on, uh, you know, make sure that missions is part of what we're trying to do in evangelism, all those things that we know. But a wonderful book. I'm so sad we're out of time. But Dr. Dr. Andrew Davis, thank you so much for being with us today. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you. Again, the name of the book, An Infinite Journey, Growing Toward Christlikeness. We'll be back right after this. This archived broadcast of Janet Mefford Today is brought to you by Preborn. For $140, you can provide ultrasounds to five women in crisis pregnancies. Call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229 or JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. Welcome back to Janet Mefford today. Great to have you here. You might have heard this story out of Indiana recently in which a high school music teacher was forced to resign for refusing to call transgendered students by their new opposite sex names. And this is just the latest chaos to erupt out of the push to normalize transgenderism. But for those who have experienced transgenderism up close, there is an important story to tell about misplaced compassion and the greater damage that it can cause. And we're going to talk about that today with Denise Schick. She is the founder and executive director of Help for Families, a nonprofit Christian ministry helping people struggling with gender confusion and their families. She's out with a new book, It Is Well With My Soul, Finding God's Peace in the Transgender Storm. And Denise, it's great to have you here. How are you doing? I'm doing good. Thank you so much, Janet. Yeah, it's great to have you here. I am curious to ask you what you make of these sorts of stories, where increasingly you're seeing teachers in trouble because they won't use opposite sex names for you know the wrong sex, or you'll have these issues like that, that couple that lost custody of their daughter because they didn't want to put her through hormone therapy. I mean, what do you think about the insanity that has really ensued over this issue of transgenderism? I feel like that I'm living on Mars. Yeah, you know, me too. That, that we are living in such an upside-down world where the truth becomes something that is hated, uh, something that, that people do not want to hear. Um, and, and the fact of the wording, how it's changing, I mean, to, to speak truth uh, or to act on how your conscience uh, feels 
is right or wrong and for people to be pushed into a jar, more or less, and, and have no way out. Um, it, we're prosecuting people just on, on the fact of their moral values. I know. It's just awful. And and this is the way it's going. It's not so much that as they started out with this transgender rights movement, well, we just want to have rights. And increasingly, it's rights that they want that will encroach upon other people's freedoms. And I'm wondering what your thoughts are on why this is being normalized. Why are people going along with it? And why are the activists pushing this so hard, do you think? Well, I, I think um, that they are normal, normalizing it by, again, you know, just uh, what is truth, what isn't, what, what's behind the whole scene. You know, it's, it's really about a spiritual battle that we're having here. People that believe in Jesus Christ, that believe in the Holy Scriptures and, and what they state, that, that that's obsolete, you know, that that no longer exists. And if you stand up uh, for the truth, for um, Christian values, then, then it's as if that you automatically are known to to hate others. Yeah. Um, so you know, to to in a sense uh, with the gay marriage and and where we're going with family and and where I'm so saddened is to see children that have the rights over adults that should be helping to put some order into their world. Yes. Well, that's right. And for those people who don't know much about you, Denise, I know we've talked before about your experience with your father, but briefly, can you share what your background is pertaining to transgenderism and what occurred in your family? Yeah. um, My father had told me as a little girl, I was nine years old, of his desire to become a woman. And so with that, struggling myself with my own identity by the time I was 11, because I thought, if God did make a mistake and dad should have been a woman, then how do I know that I really shouldn't be a man? And so starting to to try to survive myself, you know, and trying to figure out my own identity. Um, but with that, as I started to grow and mature into a young woman, there was a lot of emptiness that my father had for me. So the, growing up in the, in the home environment was very difficult, uh, to say the least, very confusing. Um, and in fact, you know, when he, uh, when I got to a certain age and he started to put on my clothing, hmm. uh, to take my clothing into the weirdest places. And so I had no privacy as well in this craziness, wow. but I understood even at, at nine years old, because my father had revealed to me that he had been sexually molested. And I knew that his mother was an alcoholic. And I also knew at nine years old that he and his father did not connect. Uh, there was a very uh, deep disconnect between him and, his, him and his dad. So I understood there were other reasons that he may want to escape his true identity and who he was. Wow, that's so awful. And, and of course, this was a time when you were a little girl that you didn't normally have people with gender dysphoria getting hormone treatments and sex change operations. That wasn't anything close to normal years ago. So how did his transgenderism manifest itself, his gender dysphoria? What sorts of things did your father do? As you mentioned, he wore some of your clothes, but did he act in a particularly different way when you left the house? Did he ever try to be a female or how did that manifest itself? What did it look like? Yeah, he was doing it behind the scenes for many years, and uh, I knew when he would be feeling that way because that was something else that he would say. Uh, for instance, for my father, he would say, you know, when I sit over there on the rocker and I cross my legs, you'll know that I'm feeling like a woman. Wow. And so he dropped all these hints to me, which were really, you know, they're life altering because some of them I could be in an airport and seeing a man and not saying that he's gender dysphoric, but because of these signs that my dad had told me, those, those words come just 
flooding back. Yeah. Uh, so it, it, it definitely impacts me even today, you know, with those memories. Um, but for him, I was 28 when he had left my mom at that time to pursue the identity and to live under uh, the name of Becky. And so he lived a transgender life for 13 years uh, uh-huh. until he had passed away. But it was in those last few months of an illness where he actually, out of his own free will, nobody uh, bullying him in any way or trying to make him feel guilty for what he had done. So out of his own free will had said, this did not bring me the fulfillment that I thought that it would. Oh, how tragic. That's hard. That's so hard. And I'm sure that he suffered it, given his background of sexual abuse. That's just your heart goes out. But but in your position as his daughter, how confusing that was for you. What sort of effect do you think that whole experience had on you as a little girl? Well, I first, you know, had struggled with where am I going to find a dad? Because dad doesn't want to be my dad in the wow. sense. And so started to look at other neighborhood men or girlfriend, you know, fathers go over to their house and in a sense have the imagination that they were my dad for the night. Um, so I definitely had missed feeling that connection with my father, him in that role. I also had trouble uh, trusting adults, um, trusting men. And, and that sometimes would uh, lead me into, can I trust God? You know, if I can't trust my own dad. Right. Um, uh, a sense of not feeling valued either, valued as a daughter, as a, as a young girl. Uh, so there, there were many struggles. I ended up as a teenager uh, saving up my lunch money, babysitting money, whatever I could get to, to go get drunk, wow. to have something to help mask the pain. Right, of course. What about your mom? How did your mom handle all those things, and how did she handle your dad's situation when it came to you? Was she a help? Did she talk to you about it, or how? what was that dynamic like? Yeah, my mom, when my dad had told me, I did not say a word to my mom. Uh, she did not know until I was 28 years old oh. of what he had told me. Uh, my mom struggled with migraines, severe migraines, and she got them a lot. And so as a child, I thought, if I let mom know that he told me this, I'm going to make her sick, you know, and, and it's just going to cause her more pain to know what he's revealed to me. Uh, so it wasn't until at that point where he made the announcement that he was leaving her uh, to go and, and pursue this life uh, style. And at that time when he had finally left, though she knew that he was doing this behind the scenes as well and not really sharing that with any of, of us children, um, you know, a piece of her died. I There was such a hope that I believe in her heart that he would get help, that he would stay in the marriage, that um, out of a miracle, you know, that their relationship, that they would grow old together. And and so slowly um, there was just, there was a piece of her that that died and and was never revived. Um, She felt a lot of shame, a lot of embarrassment, uh, even with her own family when the news came out and the difficulty that that was for her to share with her brothers and her sisters. Oh, man. I mean, that that had to be so hard for her and for you, even though you were grown at the time that your parents broke up. It's never easy, and especially seeing your parents break up for that reason. And I, you know, one of the things that you address in your book, and you, and you really get into this, I want to talk to you about it, Denise, when we come back, is how to find God's peace in the transgender storm. We're going to come back talking about Denise Schick's book, It Is Well With My Soul. Stay with us. You're listening to Janet Meffer today.
Christians losing their businesses for not baking wedding cakes for homosexuals. Parents losing custody for not affirming their child's gender identity. Big tech censoring Christian books, videos, and social media posts. This isn't a dystopian nightmare. It's America in 2020. But what will God's people do to respond to the sexual radicals whose rising social and political power is threatening our religious freedom and our free speech? It's time for Christians to get informed about the looming threats that we're facing and learn how to respond as both salt and light. That's why I'd like to personally invite you to join me at our second annual God's Voice Conference, a biblical response to LGBTQ plus tyranny coming to Oklahoma City on April 17th and 18th. You'll hear from an unprecedented lineup of some of the leading Christian thinkers, pastors, pro-family activists, and medical and therapeutic experts who are fighting on the front lines of this battle and standing firmly on God's word in the face of growing LGBTQ plus opposition to Christianity. Let me tell you, there's nothing else like God's Voice Conference to get Christians ready to stand in this evil day. So I hope to see you at the God's Voice Conference and outreach of First Stone Ministries, April 17th and 18th in Oklahoma City, and take advantage of our early bird discount registration, only $85 through March 1st. So don't delay. Go to godsvoice.us. That's godsvoice.us and register for a conference unlike any other. Go to godsvoice.us and register now. What the church needs now is God's voice. From Kingdom Story Company comes I Still Believe. Based on the real-life true story of chart-topping singer Jeremy Camp, I Still Believe reminds us that amidst life storms, true hope can be found in Christ. He chose to walk into the fire with her. That's what love is. If one person's life is changed by what I go through, it will all be worth it. I Still Believe. Starring KJ Apa, Britt Robertson, Shania Twain, and Gary Sinise. Rated PG, parental guidance suggested. In theaters March 13th. More information is at istillbelievemovie.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. We are back on Janet Mefford today. It's great to have you with us. Denise Schick is with us. She has a wonderful ministry. It is called Help for Families, the number four. It's a nonprofit Christian ministry that helps people who are struggling with gender confusion or families and people who are in communities affected by transgenderism and gender dysphoria. It's a very difficult topic. Denise lived this situation with her own father, and she's out with a new book called It Is Well With My Soul. Every Christian knows that hymn, Denise, It Is Well With My Soul. It was written under very trying circumstances by the hymn writer. Why go with that thought when you're discussing the issue of transgenderism and the hope that the Lord can bring? You know, particularly for myself, because even even though I've been doing ministry for 14 years and you're traveling and the different opportunities that the Lord has given me, there is still that part of me that's like, the still isn't, it still isn't well, Lord. Um, and as I started to study more about the song, the hymn writer, the Stafford, uh, Horatio, and what they had endured, and it was like, Lord, that, you know, that's what I want. I want to be able to say wholeheartedly, Lord, I, I didn't like what had happened, but I know without a doubt that you have made me whole, and it is really okay in my soul. I can say today that through the grieving, through all of the different feelings, the denial, the, the anger, the resentment, um, the ungodly heart attitude that I had, the difficulty of it all, that, that today I am really 100% can say to God, it is well with my soul. 
great. I didn't like the lot that I've been given, but it's okay. It's really okay. And the whole idea of this book is to encourage others. Look, I know it's difficult. I know you may not be able to crawl out of bed the next morning, but with God's help, He will get you through this. Yeah, right. And with His peace, we can have peace and joy again. Well, and when you're talking with people who do have this gender dysphoria, is there any progress that can be made by speaking with them? In other words, people talk about this as being a mental condition. Can it be talked through? Can it be prayed through? How do you minister to people who have gender dysphoria? You know, first of all, um, we listen. We listen to the circumstances of, of the situations of what they have faced. And we listen compassionately but we meet them where they're at without apologizing for the scriptures as we start to show them the power of Jesus Christ. And many times it's unforgiveness in their own heart because of how they've been hurt, Mm. because of the injustice that's been done to them, especially as a child. And so as they start to untangle their past and to be able to come to that, that same place, in a sense, that family members that I am talking about saying it is well with my soul, to know the wholeness of who they are in, in God and the identity that God has for them, the healing, it's, it's not going to happen overnight, or I should say, you know, sure it can with a, with a miracle, but it generally it's taken years for this type of identity to manifest. And so it's going to take time and dedication from that person to be able to address what they've been through in life. Well, when you're talking about people who have gender dysphoria sometimes having unforgiveness in their own hearts because of their own pain, to somebody who's never experienced this condition, either personally or in their own families, it can sound like, how do you go from being in pain to wanting to dress like a woman as a man? What What is the connection point between pain and trans, transgenderism? Well, you look for an escape, an escape of reality. You know, for instance, I I was speaking with a young woman two nights ago, and she said, you know, when I was six years old, I was raped by my cousin. And I realized that I just wanted attention as I was growing up because she still wasn't, she had the rape that she was trying to deal with, the embarrassment and the shame, but as well saying, I wanted attention. And so what we're working on now is we're going back, first of all, to the rape. To those feelings that have happened, and why was it so important for her to gain attention? So we have to understand each person, their circumstances, of where where were the roots of this? What would cause somebody to want to flee, really, their true identity, right? and to hide it, and to mask it into something else? What would you say, Denise, is the way that gender identity disorder ravages souls? Because that's something that you address in the book. It steals the person's true identity. It takes the life away from them that God had fully intended for them, which many times is the happiness, obviously, for the person. So it it steals everything that God had intended for that life initially, and Satan has taken it from them. Now, for families, that's a trickier question, it would seem, in some ways, because they're dealing with somebody else's sin. I think you talk about that, that sometimes the trials you go through are because of somebody else's sin. Where do you begin to minister with families who say, like you did, my dad 
thinks he's a woman. What? Where do I even begin with this? And he doesn't want to get help. He wants to leave my mother. He wants to live life as a woman and maybe even have surgery. What in the world do I do? Denise, that's a tough situation to minister to somebody about. That's Where, where do you even begin? Yeah, you, you begin, and, and us as the church, to, to listen to the person, um, and many times to be there while they're grieving the losses, the, the shock that they're going through, uh, to be able to comfort them through the words of God, to be able to, to minister to where they are at that time, and to be willing to walk with them through this process, because if they just found out, and if the person is head-on and having a sex reassignment surgery, and to live under that identity, there are so many rocks that they are going to be trying to climb up over and under to get on top again, um, the emotions that they go through. I, I think the worst part of it all is, honestly, Janet, is the grieving process, because it isn't mm-hmm. something like a death, a natural death. We're yeah. speaking about grieving the death of somebody that we know, but there's no closure, right. because that person is still living. Right. Now, for those Christian families who say, my transgender relative is not a Christian, how do I interact with my father? Do I call him mom? I mean, what about how do you navigate those issues if you have a, a parent who says, I want to be called by a new name and, and those kinds of things? What do you advise people to do? Well, I advise people to, first of all, to, to look at the scriptures of it, you know, and not to lie, not to deceive. Right. I never called my dad Becky, she, or her, and it was, I can honestly tell you, it was not out of a resentful, angry heart. It was out of a heart that just wanted her dad to, to know, to be reminded of who he was. Obviously, to, in most circumstances, to have a talk with a loved one and let them know, you know, if they're, if they're letting you know this in a conversation, I want you to call me to be honest about where your personal convictions are and, and the sense that, you know, this is where I am on this, and and sometimes they're not going to accept it. And you've got to learn to be okay with that. Right. Yeah, you talk in the book, too, about having a long, long-term perspective, an extra long in there. What are you talking about, Denise, when it comes to having a long, long-term perspective? Well, a long-term, we can usually say when I, when I get through this, but when I mean long, long-term, I'm looking at the heavenly uh perspective of this all and of our life, of our own personal journey that we have to go through our relationship to end up in in, in, in living with the kingdom, you know, with God, and to know that it's our holiness that we're responsible for. It's our heart that we're responsible for. And, And so to be able to lay down at night and know that we have done it well um, with the boundaries that maybe we had to put in place or how we had uh, had to speak to somebody in truth, even though it really hurt them or made them mad. But to be able to lay our head down at night and say, it's okay. You know, this is a tough journey, but God is with me. Yes. Well, and, and for all the journeys of life, it comes down to that ultimately, that the Lord is with me. Lo, I am with you always. And that's what we all hold on to as Christians. And that at some point, we are no longer going to be suffering the way we suffer here on earth. But I think it's such a good perspective, Denise. One of the things that I really appreciate you saying is the fact that you're not going to help people lie and that we need to face yeah. up to who we are as human beings created in the image of God. And that can be a long process. But I 
I think it's such a wonderful thing that you are doing what you're doing for these families. I think increasingly you're going to be facing having more people come forward with this kind of gender dysphoria because for some reason, it, you know, this just seems to be growing in our culture right now. Can you let people know, Denise, very quickly how they can get in touch if they need help in their own families? Yes, they can go to our website, which has all our contact information, and that's www.help4families.com. Um, and, and just for folks to remember, you know, it, it's, it's not easy uh, to stand against the culture and, and what their messages are. It's hard to be a Christian today and to speak truth. Yes, it is. And also the book, It Is Well With My Soul. Denise Schick with us, help4families.com. Check it out. Denise, thank you for being here. Always great to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you. God bless. And we'll see you next time here on Janet Meffer Today. Thanks a lot for tuning in. This hour of Janet Meffer Today was brought to you by Kingdom Story Company's I Still Believe. Based on the real-life true story of chart-topping singer Jeremy Camp, I Still Believe, rated PG. Parental guidance suggested in theaters March 13th. More information is available at IStillBelieveMovie.com.